Well, we knew this day was coming for some time, uh, but that doesn't make it any less sad. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away yesterday, succumbing after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. Hi, I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to an unexpected National Preview Online podcast. The topic of today's podcast is not unexpected. Uh, when a Supreme Court justice, especially one as uh, long-standing and as well-known as Justice Ginsburg, passes away, it's going to generate quite a bit of commentary on both sides of the aisle. It's unexpected only because I wasn't anticipating doing a podcast on Saturday. We usually don't. Uh, I certainly would have covered it Monday, but I thought the issue important enough that I make at least a preliminary set of observations today. No doubt I'll have more to say on Monday as more people weigh in on her passing and the implications it has not only for the presidential election, but for the future of the country and beyond. But in the immediate aftermath, I wanted to say a few things. As you know, this is a conservative podcast, and I'm a conservative myself. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was anything but. However, despite the fact that she was considerably left of center, I had great respect for Ruth Bader Ginsburg because I viewed her as a woman who was true to herself and true to her principles and true to the old school way of doing things. She didn't let her politics interfere with her civility. That's not the case today. People on the left, you're not allowed to disagree with them. You see what's going on now in the country, protests against Trump, protests against our past. Anybody who differs in their opinion uh, with the left, they're eviscerated. They're criticized. They're racist. They're this, they're that. Uh, you would think that these people would have um, be of the opinion that everyone loved Obama or Clinton or any other president for that matter. I didn't like Obama. I've said it before. I didn't like Clinton. But they were the duly elected presidents, and I didn't see fit to take my disagreement with them to the point where I was willing to destroy other people's property and riot and, and do things which are unacceptable in a civil society. Ruth Bader Ginsburg may have been liberal in her politics and her judicial philosophy, but that didn't prevent her from having a very deep, close friendship with one of the most conservative justices that has ever served on the court, Justice Antonine Scalia. It was well known that they were very close friends. They went to the opera together. They talked together. They were the closest friends that they had of each other on the Supreme Court. Unbelievable. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a long career with the ACLU, and she refused to disavow them when she was appointed to the court, when she was nominated to the court. She said, look, I'm not turning my back on the ACLU. People either take me as I am or they don't. And she was... Uh, conf confirmed overwhelmingly by the United States Senate. And she further proved what a straight shooter she was, in my view, because despite all of this anti-Trump climate and this, this acrimony that we have where all civility and all pretense of civility is now gone, when she was asked last year, about Justice Kavanaugh's nomination. 
to the Supreme Court. She had a very, very, very interesting answer. She explained what I just explained about how she was asked about disavowing the ACLU and she refused to do so. And she spoke how it never came up in the questioning. She was nominated. And then she spoke about Antonine Scalia, her dear friend. He says, now everyone knew who Justice Scalia was. He was a known quantity. He was very conservative. And he was overwhelmingly approved because he was overwhelmingly qualified. And then she said, which put it all into perspective and summed it all up in a nutshell. The way the process was done then, referring to both her confirmation and the confirmation of Scalia, was the right way. He said, what is being done now, today, is wrong. She had nothing but contempt for the way Justice Kavanaugh's nomination was conducted. It was so partisan, it was ridiculous. Everyone knew Justice Kavanaugh was qualified for the court, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But because she was such an icon, they couldn't out-and-out turn on her. But there were some comments made that sort of poo-pooed her observations on that. So for that reason, and reasons like it over the years, I always had respect for Justice Ginsburg as a person, even though I disagreed with her judicial philosophy and her political leanings. But she definitely was uh, a great American, and she should be remembered as, uh, as a very good Supreme Court justice. No question about it. You can't say anything other. I think to say anything other than that uh, is to discredit yourself. But now we turn to the aftermath. Now we're only not even months away from an election. We're less than two months away from a pivotal election in this country's history. And we have a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And given the acrimony that's going on, what should we do? How should we proceed? Well, this is where it gets complicated. The Senate Majority Leader Mitch O'Connell has already vowed that Trump's nominee, if he makes one, and he's going to make one, uh, he was very, very effusive in his praise, the president was, of the late Justice Ginsburg, but he also said he plans on naming a successor. Now, I'm going to defend that decision, and you're probably going to say, well, of course, for, uh, Jamie, we expected you to defend it. No, I'm going to do, defend it, and I'm going to tell you why. And I understand it is problematic because when President Obama wanted in his last year to appoint um, Justice Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court, who was a liberal, uh, he was stopped. Mitchell, Mitchell Connell stopped him because the Republicans controlled the Senate and they made the argument, which was a good argument in an election year, that it was an election year and therefore... Uh, we should leave it to the voters. Let's see who they vote for in November, and that person will make the appointment. Uh, and now people are saying that quite naturally, well, if that argument was good enough then, why isn't it good enough now? Why doesn't it apply to Trump? Well, that is a good question, and I'm going to give you what I consider to be a good answer on several fronts. First of all, on the front of fairness, President Trump has been treated anything but fairly. Nothing has been the usual way of doing business in Washington as it pertains to Trump. 
So to now suddenly foist upon him that burden, saying, well, this is the way it's always been done, you should do it that way, is rather hypocritical on the part of the left. They manufactured evidence against him. They did everything they could. They corrupted the Department of Justice. They corrupted the FBI. And now they expect fair play from Trump. So that's one reason that justifies Trump appointing. The second reason is, back when Obama wanted to appoint Merrick Garland in 2016, the election was shaping up to be a contest between Hillary Clinton and the now president, current president, Donald Trump. And all of the polls and all of the pundits and everyone said this is going to be a a wipeout of an election. I remember watching two weeks before, watching that idiot used to be on the five, uh, talking about uh, this election is over. Trump has nowhere to go. All they can do is minimize damage down ballot. It was over. So the issue that I'm about to raise now wasn't an issue then. Well, now we have a very, very different, different situation. We have people that have done everything they can to eliminate this duly elected president. We have people in place who have threatening violence if Trump is reelected. They're now threatening violence if he attempts to put a new Supreme Court justice on. We have this ridiculous mail-in voting, which I said from the beginning, and other people have said from the beginning, is fraught with risk of fraud and coercion. Jimmy Carter came to that conclusion, along with James Baker in a bipartisan commission back in 2009. We've discussed this before in this program. And that was the prevailing view of politicians, of newspapers, of academics, until Trump became president. Now, all of a sudden, it's become fashionable to discuss mail-in voting. And it's been accelerated and given new life or additional life because it's been potentiated by this COVID-19 horse manure. As I've said before, there is no reason people can't vote in person and COVID should not come into play. People are going shopping. They're waiting online. They're touching things on the shelf that other people have touched, but they're afraid to go into a voting uh, location and take a piece of paper that no one's touched before, fill it out and scan it in a computer. No, please. And if you did have a legitimate reason for not going to the polls because you were a person that was at risk. You can request an absentee ballot, which has been done many times, sending out mass ballots to people who didn't request them to voter rolls that we know are inaccurate is just inviting fraud. Now, personally, I don't think that on the day of the election, the in-person voting total is going to be even close. We now know in recent polling that in these Democratic states, in these Democratic cities that have been besieged by violence and rioting, like Minneapolis, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, in these cities, Trump is preferred two to one over Biden by these people. Well, Oregon, I've got news for you. Let's take Let's take Oregon, for example. Oregon is thought of as a liberal state. And I suppose it is in terms of the way it's voted in presidential elections in the past. But that's only because uh, it's a very, very sparsely populated state, except for Portland and the immediate area surrounding it, which is decidedly liberal. Now, if these polls are accurate, that Trump is being preferred two to one by people living in cities besieged by violence as a result of all this nonsense that's been happening lately. How can any Democrat hope to win 
the state of Oregon, if the city of Portland, Oregon, is going to go for a Republican or a conservative, in this case, Trump. Can't happen. And I expect this is going to be replicated in many places across the country, including Minnesota, where Minneapolis is the issue, and in Washington state, where Seattle is the issue. People are going to be very surprised. And then I think there's going to be a big attempt to try and mail in after the fact and try and play with the postmarks these mail-in ballots in sufficient quantity to offset whatever the totals turn out to be on election evening. People are going to be watching these things. Oh, we need another 60,000 ballots in uh, Washington. Trump just won there. Let's make sure we reverse that. This is what fraud looks like. And I think that for the second time in my lifetime, this issue may come to the Supreme Court for final resolution. A decision of this magnitude cannot be made with eight justices on the court. You get a 4-4, and what happens then? We get a revolution in the country? We need at least 5-4 one way or the other. That position must be filled. So for reasons having to do with fundamental fairness, the way Trump was treated, for the contemptible way the Democrats conducted themselves, the corruption that existed in both the previous administration with the full knowledge of the past president of this cabal, this attempt to remove Donald Trump, this coup, if you will, to the issue of the necessity of having a nine-justice court so that this issue, if it comes to pass over the election, can be resolved. We need to have a replacement from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I wish the president all Godspeed in this endeavor. And I hope and pray that Senate Majority Majority Leader Mitch McConnell sticks to his guns and his commitment and make sure that this nominee gets an up and or down vote before the election and is confirmed and put on the court. And ladies and gentlemen, if you think, if you think what happened to Judge Kavanaugh was beyond the pale and drawn out by the Democrats. You ain't seen nothing yet, as the saying goes. Wait till you see the kicking and screaming on the Senate Judiciary Committee when they do the nomination, and wait till you see the shenanigans and filibustering on the full floor of the United States Senate when this nominee, whoever it is, comes up for a vote. God bless the nominee, whoever it is. I hope he or she can stand up to the pressure. I suspect the president will appoint a woman, a conservative woman, but I expect he will appoint a woman. And Godspeed to the president and the United States Senate. I hope they have the courage of their convictions in the Republican Party to do what's right and put this person on the court. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.